Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, brethren. Hope everybody is well. And uh, just want to say what a treat it is to be here such a blessing to be part of this congregation and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the the role that each and every one of us play in making this congregation what it is it's a uh, the Sabbath is a joy I I, I find myself longing for the Sabbath to be together with all of you and I thank you for that and I want to point back to when we started we crafted a roadmap. And in that roadmap, we said our vision was a dynamic, actively serving, congregational family that worships God in spirit and in truth and endeavors to keep the unity or the, the, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that's the vision that we set out. And a year later, we hosted the first day of Unleavened Bread. And I saw this. I saw a dynamic, actively serving, congregational family that worships God in spirit and truth and keeps the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So what a blessing that starting out we said, this is what we want to build. This is our vision. I want to remind you as well that our guiding principle that we set, what would guide the way we conduct ourselves, was this. We ought to know how to behave ourselves as the house of God. We should know how we should behave ourselves as the house of God, which is the church of the living God. God is alive, and he has a church, and we're in it. And we should know how to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God. The pillar and ground of the truth. So that's something, I think that's a lifelong process that we continually refine our behavior so that we can conform to the expectations of God. I just want to remind you of three of our goals and one core value that we set. We actually have seven goals and ten core values. Three of these goals, one of them is to provide a place where every believer feels safe and valued. So if you're a believer and you come to this congregation, it should be automatic that you can exhale and you feel safe here. And not just that you feel safe, but you feel valued. When you come here, there's a recognition of Christ in you. And the body values that. And you experience a sense of, wow, this congregation appreciates me for who I am. I can be myself. And I'm appreciated. That's what we want to build. Another goal, we said, was to have Bible-based leadership and relationships. That the leadership that we have here would not be ego-driven. It would not be based on men's ideas of how we should lead. We won't go to some university to find out how should, how should you lead an organization. We'll go to the scripture and see how God's body should be led. And that doesn't mean it's only led by elders. Eldership is a part of the leadership, but it's not all of the leadership. And we said we would have Bible-based leadership. So that's what we're looking for. And relationships that we would build relationships with each other that are sound and biblically based. The third goal, the seventh goal, the third one I want to mention, is we said we wanted to become a model. We wanted to be a model Christian community. And what, what that meant was we, we want to put our hands up and say, we want to provide leadership to the church of God. We want the Church of God to look at our community and say, oh, 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 that's how you do it. We've never seen that before. Well, it's in the Bible. Oh, yeah, you're right. 
you know what? We're going to do that at our congregation. And that we would actually become contagious. That the things that we do here, we would model what the, what the Bible says, and other congregations would see it. The Bible says we should provoke one another to love and good works. So congregationally, we would provoke other congregations to love and good works. And again, it's not ego-driven. It's God-driven. God wants leadership. The one core value of the ten that I want to mention that we drew up in our roadmap was maturity. We said that maturity is a core value. In other words, we said we we don't want to tolerate immaturity. We want to strive for spiritual maturity. And we described this as, we said we want a congregation of empowered Christians. We want a congregation of empowered Christians. What we don't want is a bunch of human beings who are dysfunctional, who have a need for authority, who can't make decisions, and are looking for a cult to join, and a cult leader who has his own issues, who who needs to prey on other people to feel good about himself or herself or whoever the leader is. We don't want that. We want mature Christians who are empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And no one can abuse you. That you are governed by God's word and God's spirit. And therefore, any leadership over you, you can look at the scripture and feel great about it. And say, that is godly leadership and I will follow that. It's not some dictator. And I know that Murray has his moods and we have to. (laughs) You know, but Murray and I, we're not looking to dictate you know, if we need our egos stroked, we have lovely wives. And we can ask our wives, am I lovely? Am I a nice person? I'm feeling a little um, insecure. Could you please reassure me and massage my ego? We can do that. Or we can go into our workplace and we can stand up in front of a bunch of employees or prospects or customers and say, aren't I great? And they can, and they can feed our ego. The, the, what we must not do Fearing God is to use God's people to feed our ego. God says to us, feed the flock. He doesn't say feed your ego. So we're here to feed you. And you are empowered, mature Christians. And and that's why we said as well, we would have this uh, institution that we would set up called Speaker's Corner. We'll call it the um, Sermon Discussion. Where anything that we say here is subject to evaluation. We, we don't have a free license. We're not free to come up here and say whatever we want. Oh, something occurred to me. I think God spoke to me and he told me to tell you this. We're not free to do that. What we're free to do is say, here's what God's word says. And what you're free to do is say, mm, I need some clarification on that. Because you miss this scripture and you miss this scripture. And then we can say, oh, yes, you're right. Well, the way those scriptures tie together is this. And then you can say, oh, okay, yeah, I see that. Or no. No, God's word doesn't say that. Because you're empowered. We're facilitators. We're shepherds. And we're like you. We're brethren too. We're sheep too. Jesus Christ is our shepherd. So we have this vision of this congregational family that's actively serving. We have this guiding principle that we ought to know how to conduct ourselves as the house of God. And we have these goals. We want everybody to feel safe and valued. We want biblical leadership and relationships, and we want to be a model. We want to be a model that helps the church mature and grow. And we want to be empowered. We don't want anybody pushing anybody around. We want to be spirit-led. As we started, we built this roadmap, and then Pastor Murray gave us a sermon entitled one another. And he went through all the scriptures in the New Testament that showed us how to treat one another, both positive and negative. I spoke the following week, and I said I believe that that would be the most important sermon we would hear all year. 
as the year has progressed, I want to revise what I've said. And I want to say I think that is one of the most important sermons we will ever hear. I think as we've gone through the year, God has shown us that we are a community and that we are a family and that salvation is communal. It is not individual. I think most of us came into the church believing salvation is individual. It's something we work out for ourselves. But we've seen very clearly through Philippians and Corinthians and other scriptures that salvation is actually a communal, congregational affair. It's something we work out together. And learning how to treat one another is core. It is core to this salvation process. In, in, in other words, if we don't learn how to treat one another, we will not be in God's kingdom, period. God doesn't need us if it's just us and God. He doesn't need us if it's just us and God. What he needs are spirit-led individuals with the mind of God and the capability that he put in these minds who can actually work together and enjoy working together. And that takes a lifetime. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to, first of all, and I I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, and I hope it doesn't sound self-congratulatory, but I am in awe of this congregation. And I want to congratulate you. As I said, it's just a joy to, I long to, my soul longs to be here on the Sabbath. And it pains me to travel. So there's something beautiful here that the soul recognizes. And I want to thank you for that. And it's a foundation. And now we need to build on this foundation. So what I want to do is I want to take Pastor Murray's sermon And it was such an important sermon, we actually revised our roadmap and took all of those one another scriptures and put it on our roadmap. How we should treat one another and how we should not treat one another. And so that's an integral part. It's part of our DNA, learning how to treat one another. So I want to build on this. And I just want to peel back a couple of layers and get a bit more specific. And I'm sure you've all heard ministers say, you know, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just giving this sermon. I'm not saying that. Okay? This sermon is going to touch everybody in this room. So this is about you. And it's about me. And there's no wiggle room. And the thing about this sermon as well is when it's talking about you, you'll know it's talking about you, but everybody else will know that it's talking about you too. So this might be a little bit uncomfortable, but we said we want to be mature. And we are where we are, And God's word is God's word. So this, we're going to look at some scriptures that are demographically focused. So if you're a mother, there are scriptures for you. If you're a daughter, there are scriptures for you. If you're a husband, there are scriptures for you. And what we're looking for for is just to peel back this layer a bit to say one another, but specifically, how should a daughter treat her mother? How should a wife treat her husband? Let's look at this specifically. We're going to begin in Ephesians 4. We'll just look at uh, three passages. And they're, they're a bit long, but I think this might be one of my shorter sermons. We'll just look at these passages, and then when it's done, it's done. Ephesians 4, and we'll begin in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Oh, dear. Paul is in prison. He's in prison, but he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's got a message for them. I'm begging you. So I'm in prison, but you're not. And my influence from prison is to write to you and plead with you. Please do this thing. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you, wherewith you are called. With all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another. I'm done. That's it. That's the message. Paul is in prison. From prison, he's writing to the believing community, and he's saying, look, 
Walk worthy of this calling and do it with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. So th- we're just going to tease this out. That's, that's basically the message that as we grow together as a community, we have to be patient. Not everybody can be as smart as you. Not everybody can be as quick as you. Not everybody can be as talented as you. And oh yes, not everybody can be as spiritual as you. But if you're really that spiritual, you will be patient. You'll be long-suffering. And you'll forbear in love. And now we're just going to look now at the details of how we do this. Endeavoring, and then this is part of our vision, that we would endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. So it's not that the Spirit is not unified. It is unified. But then it's distributed. So it's a unified Spirit which is distributed. And that's where we get into trouble. Because it's distributed into entities that have a self-will. So even though you have the Spirit in you, the Spirit doesn't force you to do its bidding. You have your own mind, you have your own will. So we take this unified spirit and we put it in people with their own will. And they can act against the spirit. So they can break the unity of the spirit. So what we're endeavoring to do, we have the spirit, it's unified. We're endeavoring to conform our will to the will of God's spirit. So that we can keep the unity of the spirit. In the bond of peace. So there's a binding here. We, we accepted Christ. We were baptized. We were brought into his family. And we are now bound by peace. God's spirit is a spirit of peace. So we're going to strive to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And we're never going to interact with each other in a way that creates schism. We don't do that here. We're not going to interact with each other in a way that creates a feeling of, I'm at risk, I feel like I'm under attack. We won't do that, because we're bound by peace. You have the spirit, I have the spirit. We're not seeing eye to eye. Let's figure it out in the bond of peace. There is one body. So we learn that through Passover. There's one body, it's the Lord's body. We just have to discern the Lord's body. So there's just one body. And there's one spirit. So Christ came. He suffered. He was crucified. He died. He was resurrected. He now has his resurrected body. But it's only one body. He's the head in heaven. But his pneuma, his pneumatic body, his resurrected body is on earth. And it's distributed. But it's one. And there's one spirit. Even, so one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope. It's it's not one hope for Donna and another hope for Eva and a different hope for Debbie and a different hope for Bonita. There's one hope. It's a communal affair. We all need to be in God's kingdom because there's work to do. It's not that well. Let's just get Adrian in the kingdom. And who cares about everybody else? There's a different hope for you? No, it's one hope. One hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who's above all, and through all, and in you all. So are we getting the message? It's one. So it's back to Pastor Murray's one another scriptures. We can now kind of put, it's one another scriptures. The emphasis being on the one. One spirit, one body, one Lord, one baptism, one hope. It's one. So anytime we're, enter- we're, we're introducing division into the body of Christ, we better think twice. Because we're going up against Scripture. God wants one. And then in verse 7, there's a but. One, 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 but... So there's an opposition to the one. There's one, but now we're going to oppose the one. We're going to contradict the one. What's the contradiction? 
unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So there is one, but there's an opposition to the one. And the opposition to the one is this distribution. That the spirit gets distributed according to a measure. I was using, I was juicing the other day and I was using a measuring cup. So I juice into the measuring cup and I watch it until it gets to two cups. And then I know that's the measure. And then I stop juicing. And then that fills a nice large glass with a little bit extra that I can share. So I'm, I'm juicing, pulling the juice out of the vegetables to a certain measure. Christ is taking the spirit, one spirit, and he's distributing it up to a measure. And then he stops. So you don't have the whole picture. You've got part. Then he takes another and he pours it to a measure. And then he stops. So you don't have the whole picture, but you've got part. And he does the same. So there's one spirit, but it's measured out precisely. And you've got this spirit. You were in the world, in the darkness, in the blind. You know what that's like. Now you're in the body. And you've got this life in you. And you've never had this before. And you feel spiritual. The problem is, you've only got part of the picture. Because he's taken the same spirit and given a different gift to Gord. And measured it out for Gord. So now Gord can see things that you can't see. And you, you, you might see the end result. And you're like, we've got to get here now. But Gord is seeing the next step. And he's saying, if you head in that direction, buddy, you're going to fall off the cliff. So now there's a conflict, because I'm saying, go now, and Gord is saying, no, we can't. Because he sees something I can't. So I have to respect the fact that there's a measure of the Spirit in Gord. He's got to reflect, respect the fact that there's a measure of the Spirit in me, and we need to communicate. Right? So particularly Murray and I, as elders, plural elders, no one of us is in charge here. Christ is in charge. But we're both elders. Murray's going to see something I don't see. I'm going to see something he doesn't see. So as we talk, I realize, we get to realize, yes, that is the direction we need to go, but we need to go this way first, do a little bit of a detour, avoid the cliff, and then we can go. Well, if you listened to me, we would have all drowned. If we listened to Murray, maybe we'd be heading in the wrong direction in the, in the long term, but in the short term, it's the right direction. But together, Christ can lead. Because there's a part of the measure of the Spirit in him, and there's a measure in the Spirit of, in me. And when we let Christ lead, we discover the Spirit in each other, and Christ says, go this way first, then this way, then that way. Oh, if I just relied on myself with just a measure, I would have shipwrecked the whole church. But a measure here and a measure there, when we put it together, we've got a whole cup. So we've got to respect each other and work together. But unto, so the but is the but is not saying that the spirit is divided. It's saying it's distributed. It's still a unified spirit. It's just distributed. And we recognize that. Verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. And when he did that, first order of business to give gifts to men. Drop down to verse 11. What are these gifts? So there's, so there's one operation here, one spirit. Everybody gets a measure. But in addition to that, there are these specific gifts that he gives. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And we know from, so this is leadership that he's giving. And he's saying the leadership is a gift. You're empowered Christians but I've got a gift for you. And you should be excited about this gift. It's for you. It's not in opposition to you. It's not to abuse you. It's to bless you. And it's my gift to you. So I'm going to put my spirit in these men in such a way that you will be blessed. And we know from Luke, during the Passover period, Christ told them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. 
and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. So my son just started work, and he's got bosses over him. And those bosses tell him what to do, and he does it, and he gets paid. So they're considered benefactors. They're necessary, and they're beneficial. But the way that they exercise their lordship, the scripture says, that's not God's way. That's not to be in the church. So when he gives these gifts of evangelists and pastors and elders, they're to have a completely different leadership style than what we see in the world. So it should not in any way concern you that God is putting shepherds over you. Because he says he will give you shepherds after his own heart. So God will put in the heart of these men his heart. And they will lead in a way that's a gift and a blessing to you. And, if you, and, and it should be clear. If you don't see it, you're an empowered Christian. The Bible doesn't say just sit there and don't do anything about it. You have access to God directly. And you're empowered. And you should be able to change things so that we all function in a healthy way. Let's go to Hebrews 13. Keep, sorry, keep your finger in Ephesians 4. We're coming right back. I'll just read it. We're just going to pick up uh, two scriptures here, two verses. And we have to marry these two verses with what it says in Luke, that whoever is greatest is the one that serves. We're given this gift of leadership, so they must obviously be the ones that serve. And in Hebrews 13, verse 16, it says, To do good and to fellowship, don't forget, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you. And I'll tell you, so many human beings have difficulty with this. That somebody has authority over me. I'm self-willed. I do what I want when I want. I can't have somebody over me telling me what to do. Well, when we come into the church, into the body, it has a head. And it has members. And the head directs the members. And God is saying here, obey them that have the rule over you. But yet we saw this is a gift. It's, a, it's the first order of business when Christ ascended. First order, top priority, send gifts in the form of leadership. And now he says here in Hebrews, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. So it doesn't say to the leaders, find those you have the rule over and crush them. Make sure they comply. It doesn't say that. It says to the elders, you be an example. You lead by example. And then it says to the flock, you submit yourselves to them. So it's not us forcing you to submit yourself to us. It's us doing our best to be a good example and you voluntarily submitting yourself to our leadership. Why? Because we watch for your souls. And what does that mean? We must give an account and let us do it with joy and not with grief because if we do it with grief, that's unprofitable for you. And I can tell you, I think I can speak very safely based on the conversations I've had with Pastor Murray. We do this with joy. We run businesses we have families, we have children, we have wives. We, we would like to have a bit of a personal life, go to the gym occasionally. And on top of all of that, we have the care of the church, or churches, and we do it with joy. We do it with joy. And that's what the scriptures say. That, that's how the community should function. That it's a joyful thing to be led by the elders, if they're doing it God's way, because Christ is leading. And it's a joyful thing for the elders to lead. Let's go back to Ephesians 4. Verse 12. These gifts are given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And these commas you have to take with suspicion. There's no punctuation like this in the Greek. We're here to perfect you. Christ is the one who's perfecting you, but he does it through uh, a body and through leadership and as we perfect you you can do the work of the ministry you're not here to sit down You're, you've been recruited to work so there's a ministry for you to do according to your gift but you we, we need to be matured we need to be developed 
and that's why we're here, so that you can do the work of your ministry. And as you do the work of your ministry, you edify the body of Christ. So there's a role that you have to play, and only you can play it in this body. And as you play it, the body is edified. And as the body is edified, it can then play its role more effectively. So it can now edify you. And now that you're edified and you're stronger, you can now edify the body. And so the body just keeps making itself stronger as each person does their part. But in order for you to do your part, Christ needs to work through these gifts of ministers that are refining you and helping to bring out the best in you so that the body can be edified. And we keep doing this, verse 13, until we all come. It doesn't say, Adrian, as long as you make it, that's all good. It says, Adrian, we all must come to the unity of the faith. So we have to be patient. We have to be long-suffering. We might have to go over things over and over again. But our mindset is we're a body. We're all in this together. And we're going to wait for one another. We learned that with the agape meal. We're not going to rush on ahead. We're going to wait for you. And we're all going to cross the finish line together. And the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So each one of us has a measure. And as we edify each other, we have a collective measure that keeps getting edified and growing until we come to the full measure of Christ. We cannot get to the full measure of Christ unless everybody with a measure participates and edifies. And it starts with Christ giving something to the elders, the shepherds, to give to you so that you can mature, so that you can, ed- you can do your ministry and edify the body, so that the body is stronger, so that it can edify you, so that you're stronger, so that you can edify the body. And measure upon measure, we grow into the fullness of Christ together. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. And Pastor Murray said... Doctrine builds upon doctrine. That when we get one true doctrine, we get another. We've, we've somehow tripped over this understanding that salvation is communal. And now all these other scriptures are opening up to us. Or we allow a false doctrine in, and we buy into that, and other false doctrines come in as well. So this issue of doctrine is critical. And God gives us members as gifts to sort through the doctrine. So that we're feeding on healthy doctrine, healthy food, and we grow. And we're not tossed about to and fro by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. And there's a lot of craftiness, and there has been. From the moment, even before Christ died, but from the moment he was resurrected and started his church, cunning craftiness was there. And it's never left. It is our persistent enemy. And God gives us Shepherds to protect us from this. They lie in wait to deceive. But we, speaking the truth in love, may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So I mentioned Christ is the head, he's in heaven, we're the body, we're on earth, but we have his spirit in us. And the head directs his spirit. So we're the body, Christ is, we're members of the body. And Christ is nudging us and moving us around because we're the body. And we have to discern that in one another. From whom the whole, so so the head is Christ. And from the head, from whom Christ, the whole body. And we're talking congregationally, but we have to think of this broader. It's the whole body of Christ. But from a practical sense, let's talk about our congregation. Because this is where we live. We get it right here, we'll get it right elsewhere. From whom, from Christ, the whole body is fitly joined together. So, in a way, we didn't have a choice. God put us here. And he put us here with each other. With, with a precision. It's like looking at the blueprint and saying, yeah, Ray goes right there, Jennifer goes there, Gord, Linda goes there. It's, it's precise. It's not an accident. And we're compacted 
by that which every joint supplies. So every time we talk with one another, that's a joint. So there are many joints in this small congregation. And every joint supplies something which compacts the body. So in every interaction, something happens that makes the body stronger, makes the body tighter, compacts the body. By that, which every joint supplies. So remember, there's a measure in every part. And as measure comes to measure, that's a joint. So each measure is supplying something in the joint, which then supplies something to the body, which compacts the body. According to the effectual working. It's effectual. When God puts his spirit in you, it's effectual. There's no such thing as ineffectual pneuma. Christ's spirit is effectual. When it's in you, it's working. The effectual working in the measure of every part, it makes increase or growth of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk, not as the Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. So Gentiles are very individualistic. Gentiles are egotistic. Gentiles care about themselves. I can be the greatest. How to be all I can ever be. How to be the perfect body. Get to my perfect weight. How to be the most intelligent person. In all these books that I'm reading, as a Gentile, a spiritual Gentile, none of them are telling me how to sacrifice myself so that someone else can be better. I'm walking in the vanity of my mind. How I can be great. How I can be strongest, richest, best. We don't walk like that. We're all about how do we benefit the body? How do we make sure that everybody crosses the finish line? Let's uh, just look at verse 27. In all these things that we're not to do, we don't want to, verse 27, give place to the devil. So there is a, there is a being. He's very real. We call him the devil. He hates what's going on here. And he's going to find a way to get in. And if we walk in the vanity of our mind, that is the door. That is the access point. So again, my son just started working. He's got an access card. So he can get into certain doors that other people can't. When we walk in the vanity of our mind, that is an access key for the devil to come into the congregation. So we must shed this way of walking and we must walk communally as a body. Let's drop down to verse 32. Again, one of these one another scriptures. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So our nature must be a mild nature. So, you know, I'm supposed to be an example to you, but sometimes I don't have a mild nature. So don't, don't follow me when I don't have a mild nature. Unless it's, it's a godly retribution. There is a time not to be mild. But I'm learning to be tender-hearted. I am, Eva. You're looking at me like, no, you're not. <laughs> I am. I'm trying. Uh, I'm learning to be patient. I'm learning that God will come through, but not always right away. So I'm learning to pray and leave it with God and then behold what he does and to know that he's doing it and it's not me. So we have to have this nature with each other that we're just tender-hearted. And I'll leave you to read through the rest. But let's, let's go to um, chapter 5 very quickly. And see here, verse 21, we're submit, to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. So you have an opinion, I have an opinion. They're contradictory. The way it should be resolved is, I'm saying to Pastor Murray, let's do it your way. And he's saying, no, 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 we can do it your way. And, and now that we're each kind of deferring to each other, then let's try to figure out what does God really want. But it's not me pushing Murray and saying, you don't know what you're talking about, it has to be this way. And him pushing back and saying, well, you're such an idiot. You, you, you're, you've only been a minister for a few months. What are you talking about? And then you guys hear that we're just, we can't stand each other. No. 
We're going to defer to one another. And in that deference, we're going to try to figure out what does Christ want? Because he has a measure, I have a measure, you have a measure. So we submit to one another. And then wives, submit yourself to everybody's husbands. As long as they're male, you better do what they do, what they say. doesn't say that. Submit to your own husbands. That there's a relationship that is sacred between a husband and a wife. And if you violate the order in that relationship and then come into the community with that attitude, you're going to violate the community. It's an access for the devil. But if you learn as wives to submit to the role of your husband, then when you, come, when you as a family unit come into the body, you're contributing that piece of substance that is going to help unify the body. So within our, within our families, husbands and wives, we need to get this right. Goes on to say this is a mystery, but husbands, we have to love our wives. We have to treat our wives the way Christ treats the church. And what did he do? He sacrificed himself. So there's nothing that we wouldn't do for our wives. And again, we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes, but once we recognize it, we repent, we go the extra mile. Because of how we treat our wives, they love to submit to us. They're not in a sense of angst. I've got to submit to my husband. He's an idiot. Right? It's, wow, my husband really loves me. He'll do anything for me. And I'm happy to submit to him and, and, and help him. And when we figure that out, we bring that understanding into the community. And the community functions healthily because we've kind of figured it out at home. Let's go to chapter 6. Verse 1. Children. Okay. So everybody knows where the children are. I said this is going to be demographically focused. So children, you're two in this community. Obey your parents. So anything your parents tell you to do, you're to obey with a proviso as long as it's in the Lord. So we, what, again, you're empowered. The scripture is saying to you that even though we're your parents, we do not have the right or the authority to teach you against what's in your Bible. So this is a biblical community, and we all have access to the Word. And so even as a parent, I'm telling my son, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Uh, uh, Now that you have this access card at work, when you're in that special room, see if you can get this for me. Uh, Excuse me, Dad. Scripture's telling me something else. So thanks for your input, but no thanks. You have that right. But if we are telling you something that is in the Lord, the Bible tells you, your role is to obey. You might not like it. You might be saying, you've got a better idea. Children are always smarter than their parents, always. Especially with the new technology. You know things we don't know. But even if you don't like it, the scripture is telling you, as part of this community, your job, your role, is to obey your parents. It goes on to say, verse 2, to honor. This is a proactive word. This is, you, you cannot honor your father and your mother sitting down playing video games, never interacting with them. To honor your parents, you actually have to burn some calories. You've got to get up, and you've got to proactively do things. Honor is something you do. It's not, it's not a reaction. It's, it's a proactive thing to honor your parents. So this is what it's asking you to do in this community. Fathers, we have authority. So now let's look at the fathers. We have authority over our household. It says don't provoke your children to wrath. So there's tension between a parent and a child. Child wants one thing, parents wants another. Parents have the authority. But what the scripture is telling us, parents, is don't push so hard that the child is now wrathful and angry. Back off. See if there's another way to come at this. Apologize. Let's, let's try this again. 
And it's all about communicating so that each side understands. The children have the responsibility to obey and to honor. But the fathers, and I'll include the mothers, those in authority, have to exercise their authority in such a way that we don't provoke you. Because it's a community. If we are servants, so there's nobody working for anybody here, but we we do have uh, people we work for, whether they're bosses or customers, we need to be obedient to them that are our masters according to the flesh. They're not our masters according to the spirit. But according to the flesh, they've asked us to do something. We should be compliant and do what they've asked. And do it in singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Okay. Let's uh, go to Titus. The situation in Titus is Paul is setting up churches in Crete. But he has to now leave Crete and go to Macedonia. If it's not Macedonia, it's, it's Ephesus. But he's leaving Crete. And so he's, he's, done, he's only done half the job. So he's handing the rest of the job over to Titus. And he's saying, continue where I left off. So these are communities that are being established. We're a new community. So we can actually look at, if, if, if we were in Crete as a new community, this is what Paul would be doing in establishing our community. And since he had to leave and go to Ephesus or Macedonia, this is what Titus would be doing. So how would Titus set us up? Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life. Let's cross this finish line. Which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but has in due times manifested his word through preaching. So preaching matters. Which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I left you in Crete. So I'm, I'm gone. Here, stay, stay on task. Don't get distracted. Do this for me, for God. That you should set in order the things that are wanting. And the number one priority, ordain elders in every city. Christ needs to lead the body. And to do that, he needs leadership. So find the leadership in every city and and ordain these elders. Because we need to build these communities. And if there isn't healthy leadership, the communities will unravel. So these elders, there are requirements. They must be blameless. They must be faithful to their wives. They have faithful children. Uh, they, I notice bishop and elders are interchangeable. So uh, episcopus and presbyter, people try to make things that these are two different roles. Same thing. There's, just, there's, there's the body, there are deacons, and there are elders. And that's it. There's no big hierarchy of popes and bishops and all this stuff. So it gives us the requirements. So, so Murray and I have to study these requirements. You have to study these requirements and make sure that you have elders that fit these requirements. Uh, but notice a lover of hospitality and a lover of good men. Because we need a community that will have opportunities to be together. And if you have a, a leadership that doesn't love good men, that's jealous of good men, or that doesn't care for hospitality, would rather spend his time uh, pursuing money, then the community is not going to gel. So we need leadership that's going to enable the community to gel. Uh, And again, going back to this uh, doctrinal issue, the priority, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, so as a body we need to be exhorted with sound doctrine, but also to contradict the gainsayers. So when people come with false doctrine, the eldership has to have such mastery of the doctrine that they can put down false teaching, because false teaching will shipwreck us. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially of the Jewish persuasion, whose mouths must be stopped. This is urgent. We must stop their mouths. And we need people who can do that, who have the ability to teach. Let's... uh, Look at chapter 2. You speak the things now 
in this community that you're setting up, which becomes sound doctrine. So the older men, so again, we know who the older men are, okay? I'm over 50, I won't say how much, but I'm, I'm in this category now. So we, we know who's who, here's the responsibility. Aged men must be sober. We must be grave. We must be temperate. Sound in faith, in charity, in patience. So we can't have older men in the congregation, you know, shirt buttoned down to the belly button, hairy chest, gold chains. This isn't sober behavior. Okay? Leave that for young people, if, if they're interested in that. We, we must be grave. We must be temperate, sound in faith. So there's a way we as... And we mentioned we want biblical leadership. Older men provide leadership. So even though you, you might not be an elder, you're a leader because you're an older man. And so your example matters. And this is what the word is looking for from you. The aged women are also leaders. So if any of our women are past middle-aged, you're aged. That's not a bad thing. Let's not, let's not get swept up in the immature adolescence of our society that says age is such a terrible thing. Age is a disease. And if you have age, oh, you poor thing. That's not what God's word says. Age is an honorable thing. And if we're past middle-aged, we're aged. And we're honorable. And we should be a source of wisdom. And so our aged women are leaders in the community. And likewise, in behavior, they must, their behavior must become holiness. You know, I was with a group of CEOs yesterday, and we were chatting. One of them stayed behind talking, and somehow we got on to casual Fridays. And he's saying, coming up to the summer, and all these employees are coming up to him saying, we don't know how to dress, we don't know how, well, how should we dress? And he said to them, if you can look down it, up it, or through it, leave it at home. And this is a secular organization. But we'll have people come into the church, even aged women, and you can look down it, you can look up it, you can look through it. And what kind of leadership is that to our young women? So our aged women in the community are to be leaders, and we lead by example. So our behavior must become holiness, not false accusers. And you know what? I think men can be as guilty of this as women but it's in the women text that we mustn't be false accusers. And maybe there's just a way we get together and we start accusing people of things that are not true. That should never be in this community. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. So if you're past middle-aged, you are to be a teacher of good things. That is your role. You can't teach if you're not engaged. This is a proactive commitment. I'm going to be a teacher of good things. I'm going, to, I'm going to take on the responsibility. So I'm going to call aside maybe a young person and I'm going to build a relationship with them so that I can teach them good things. It's not somebody coming out of the air who, who appears suddenly and says, you should be doing this. I don't know who you are. But I have a relationship with you and because of that relationship in the community, I can now teach you good things. So we need our ladies to be leaders and teachers of good things. Lead by example and teach good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober. It seems like being sober is not something we pick up naturally. It needs to be taught. To love their husbands. So we turn them to their families. We're all about husband and wife being together. And we teach them and we show them. We've, we've been married together over 50 years. Let us share with you how we did it. To love their children. And again, we speak of a time, or the Bible speaks of a time, without natural affection. That children will not have natural affection for their parents. And parents will not have natural affection for their children. We have to teach against this. We have to help mothers and fathers love their children and turn the hearts of the children to their mothers and fathers. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. It matters. 
Again, let's not fall into this adolescent society that says it's all about having a career. It's all about how you show up at the workplace. That's nothing. It's all about how you show up at home and how you can figure out how to make a home run. That's, that's what it's about. This is the most important work, that we can get homes that run well and produce good children that love their parents and can contribute to society and can function in a community and that God can use. This is what, it, this is what it's about. Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, so anybody under middle-aged, likewise exhort them to be sober-minded. Again, it seems like being sober-minded is not something that comes to us naturally. Naturally, we're kind of crazy. So we need some help in understanding how to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself a pattern, so you, the elder, show yourself an example of good works, and in doctrine, show uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. So you must know us as elders who are uncorrupt. We're sound in doctrine. If you ask us about doctrine, we're on the money. We don't have these kind of strange ideas that we're trying to get you to adopt. We teach from the word. In all things, uh, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. So when we speak, it just, it's recorded. You can go back over the recording. You can't condemn what we say. You might condemn us because you hate God's word. But you can't condemn us for preaching God's word. But that's, that's, we're preaching what the word says. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Okay, let's uh, jump to... I think these other scriptures are basically saying the same thing in other ways. You can look at First uh, Peter, Titus 3. You know, I'll just touch on Titus 3, verse 1. We have to put the congregation in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no man, not to be brawlers, etc. In other words, we're compliant people. So we can't have people in here breaking the law, and then when they come to us, we say, yeah, that's okay, it's just the government anyway. No, we're compliant people. We're going to do, the, do what the law says we should do, as long as it's not contradicting God's word. First um, Peter 3 tells us about wives and husbands and uh, ministry. I think First Peter 3 also shows us, if you look at verses 9 to 16, that things will not always go our way. And that's okay, because we are Christ's character. We, we, Christ is in us. So when things don't go our way, we're patient. So we're going to suggest, you know, I really think it should be this way. And they say, well, we're not doing it that way. And we come back and you say, you know, I really think for the benefit of the congregation, we should do it this way. Nobody's listening to us. We're not going to throw a fit. We're not going to throw a tantrum until we get our way. We're going to leave it in God's hands. And it might mean we suffer wrongfully, but that's what we're called to do. So there's this whole notion of peace, this bond of peace in the congregation. First uh, Timothy 4, you can look at that again. It talks about how we should treat one another. It shows that if somebody's older than us, then we should not rebuke him, but we should entreat him as a father. So there's a way that we interact with each other that these um, scriptures are showing. It also shows us that if we have widows... We, we, we can't, again, be like the society. Somebody's older, they've lost their mate, who cares? There's a special role for widows in the congregation. And we need to recognize that. Especially if widows are economically disadvantaged. We have a responsibility. If they have family, it's the family first that must take on that economic burden. But if the family's not able to fully cover that burden, or if they don't have family, we as a community must treat widows well. And that's what the word says. And when we do have one lady who is a widow, she's younger, uh, she does travel down here, we need to recognize that being a widow is a particular burden and the community must feel that burden and respond to it. Let's conclude, brethren.
Let's conclude in Psalms 133. <clears throat> so we're on a journey, and it's a shared journey. And, and let's, I really, you know, I think between Murray, uh, Jan, and I, uh, we really, according to Christ's leadership, tried to show you the scriptures that salvation is not individual. It's not you at home alone, studying your Bible, listening to sermons. God's not interested in that. Salvation is communal. God is interested in how we, if he puts a measure of the Spirit in each of us, but we're all self-willed, how can we learn to discern the Lord's body and work as a body? And I think we've come, kind of come through round one. We got, we got over the first hurdle where we, we facilitated the observance of God's high day. And we did it as a team. We did it as a body. And I think that's, that's evidence of spiritual maturity. But the worst thing I think we can do is say, well, we've arrived. Let's put our feet up. The minute we stop growing, we're allowing disease to come into the body. So this is a lifelong effort. We're going to keep growing, keep growing, keep learning how to work as a body. And there's going to be truth that God is going to unfold to us as we mature. And I love this psalm. It's, it's been a psalm that the first time I ever heard it, I just loved it. But I think we can understand it a little more now. Psalm 133, where we'll conclude. Behold. This, this is something to behold. That when you see this, stop. Pause. It's like, smell the flowers. This, there's something beautiful happening that you should take a look at. So let's pause and reflect and look at this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is. It, it's, just, it's just so good and pleasant. It, it's, kind of, it's hard to describe. You have to behold it for yourself. So I hope, I pray, that we can be in a community where we could actually see this. Because it's so good. Oh, it's so good and so pleasant. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. It doesn't say, you know, it's pretty good if you can find a place, find a roof to be under for a couple of hours, listen to a sermon and then split. That's not what it's saying. It's saying it's a beautiful thing if you can find a community where you feel safe and valued and, and you long to be together. And when you're together, you want to stay together. You dwell. You settle in. You know, I, I'm settled now. You know, I'm so settled I could speak for another hour. But I won't. <laughs> I won't. I'm wrapping up. But, but that's what we see here, that when the service is over and we eat together, nobody's in a rush to, to leave. Because it's a beautiful thing, the koinonia, the fellowship, when we can be together. What's it like? What's it like for brethren to dwell together in unity when we have this, this bond of peace and this, this spiritual unity? What's it like? There's one body, there's one spirit, but it's divided, but we still have this one unity. What's it like? It is like the precious ointment. This is what it's like. When we figure this out, God is telling us what it means to him. When we figure this out, this is what it means to God. It's like the precious ointment upon the head. You know, usually when something is precious, you use it very sparingly. This is something that is so precious, but when it was utilized, it was utilized abundantly. Because whatever it was being utilized for was so important that we spared no expense. So when we figure this out, it's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. So this is the ointment that was used when God said to Moses, set Aaron apart, he shall be the high priest. And he shall mediate between me and my people. And he will be a blessing to my people. Now let's anoint him and bless him, high priest. He is the gift 
to my people so that they can have a relationship with me. And spare no expense. Dress him in the best priestly garbs and anoint him abundantly with the precious oil because he will give life to my people. And they can have a relationship with me through him. This is what it's like. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that we use so abundantly because what was, we were doing was so important that it ran down his beard and it went down into the collar of his priestly garments. It's like the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Because right there, that is where the Lord commanded the blessing, even life evermore. So all of these responsibilities that we have to figure out in terms of how to treat one another, as we figure it out, and the body is united, and not just united, but compacted, because every joint, you have a measure, I have a measure, every joint, we're figuring out how to, how to get our measures to work together to supply something to the body so that the body is stronger so that the body can edify itself. And when the body comes to this fullness of Christ, it is here that the Lord commands a blessing, even life evermore. We're not doing this for ourselves. We ultimately will take the role of the high priest and mediate between God and men. We need to figure out, we need to work out our salvation together. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.